0: Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jackstraw Writers Program.
1: Whenever someone complimented my physique, my mother beamed as though she had won gold. She didn't seem impressed that I've been awarded Best English Student, as long as I maintain my reign as Tallest Girl at Korean
0: Church. This program features the work of 2021 writer Grace Jong Lee. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator E.J. Ko.
2: Welcome, Grace. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Can you tell us about your Jack Straw Project?
1: So my Jack Straw Project, it's the story of a Korean American family that's also an immigrant family and a military family. And it takes place across several continents. And there's a lot of themes of memory, intergenerational trauma,
2: I also want to ask you about the things you've written about the military occupation of Korea and sort of the aspects of U.S. and Japan and those occupations, the ongoing war in Korea now, and these subjects that you've been drawn to.
1: Yeah, sure. It's something that I think about a lot, just every day more than any human should be thinking about this topic. <laughs> um, well, there's no accident that my family is now in the US. You know? It's all directly related to the history of the US government, the US military in Korea. My parents are nearly 80 now. And so they grew up and they were children during the Korean War, you know. Um, I think it's so important to capture their stories. And that's another thing that pains me so much that my Korean is not good enough that I can speak with them and understand, have full conversations. Our conversations are pretty much, you know, are you hungry? What did you eat? The level at which you can communicate with the five-year-old because that's the level of my Korean. But my mother, I once asked her, if she had a Japanese name and she said, of course, everybody did, we all did, we were forced. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I, you know, as I started to learn more and read more, it just became apparent. I think it's really, really painful. So sometimes I just have to stop asking questions And for most of my life, it was whenever I asked a question about the past, it was, why are you asking such stupid questions? Why are you always asking stupid questions? Just let it go. It's in the past. Forget about it. There's such strong desire, and I can understand from the perspective of someone who's experienced a lot of trauma, to just forget and move on. And I guess with my writing, I'm fighting against that, fighting against erasure, fighting against disappearances of entire family and cultural histories. My mother is actually from North Korea. And I remember as a child feeling like it was some deep, dark secret because when I was growing up, North Korea was like the number one US enemy, right? It's anything associated with North Korea was evil and bad. And I remember when I found out my mother was from North Korea, initially it was almost like a fear, like, (gasps) Does this means she's a bad person you know i was quite young when i thought this out mm-hmm.
2: there is a lot with the way media portrays the history of korea and sort of the history of north korea and there are certainly sort of things to note of of what's going on but i think there are parts of that story that's missing and it lends to i mean even even in south korea right the the discrimination that comes with North Koreans who finally, you know, make their way to South Korea or to the States, you know? Yeah,
1: definitely. So yeah, my mother came down from the North during the war, like many people did, to escape all the violence. They came down on foot in the middle of the night. And when she told me the story, it was so random. Because throughout my life, I've tried to ask my parents so much about their history, what was life like in Korea. It's like, oh, nothing, everything was fine, don't talk about it. And then very randomly, one day, my mother, she had wanted me to drive her to the mall to buy her something, I don't recall. And she randomly just started talking about North Korea. This is the first time in her life she ever started talking about it. I don't know what prompted that. But one day she just started talking to me, and she told me, oh, we had to come down by foot because the soldiers would shoot anybody they saw. And just all the stories she told me, it just pained me so much. I just, I had no idea the levels of trauma my mother had experienced. I mean, I always had some idea, but I didn't know any of the details. And when she started to tell me those details, It was so painful to hear, and then trying to imagine living through it. It's like my parents have lived through things that people today, it's unthinkable to them, you know? My mother's talking about how they had to bury all their possessions in the middle of the night behind the house, and they thought they would come back. After a few weeks, they thought things would settle down and they'd just come back home, and they never knew they never to be able to go home again. And just the magnitude of that loss, it's really hard to imagine.
2: I'm thinking about how memory is at times a way to survive. Like you were saying, um, not only about what to remember to keep living, but also what not to remember in order to survive. I know that, you know, I have family members who've survived massacres during a campaign against local Koreans in Japan, and during the Kanto earthquake, or after, right after the earthquake, and then um, it's my great-grandfather who, did not make it through the Jeju massacre uh, in Jeju Island and it's just interesting when I was doing research and interviewing family or trying to find records that are lost you know they're they're burned or they're gone and that means there are you're almost researching like an archival silence and it seems uh, really difficult to trace, to find those stories. But I found, you know, on top of that, I realized that sometimes I was given information that might not always be true because that's the way a country remembers an incident. And if your memory is different from that country, then you're putting your life in danger. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, memory has such a role in not only the way an individual remembers something or doesn't remember something, but the way the family remembers something, and that may or may not go against what the country remembers, what the the whole social sphere remembers about that time. And so, uh, I think I want to ask you how you're you're navigating through this sort of net after net, these these filters and and sort of these roadblocks in a way, to writing about memory, writing about family and history and trauma with all the things in between you and that thing.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to navigate. And I just related to so much of what you were sharing just now. Sometimes you have to forget to survive, right? And that's, um, that's just a survival mechanism. And through my writing, I guess I'm always pushing against that, but yet also trying to respect the fact that a lot of what I'm writing is a source of trauma, not only for me, but for many people who are involved in those stories. I feel like there's often this conversation among memoir writers or writing teachers and people say things like, well, if they didn't want you to write about them. They should have behaved better in the first place. I don't agree with that. I mean, it's not that I feel I have to go with a permission slip and get everyone's permission for every word that I'm going to write. But at the same time, we exist in the community, in the universe, and we have to be respectful of others' boundaries and privacy as well. And to be quite honest, I think that's really what's keeping me from publishing, from putting my work out there because of this fear of destroying relationships, this fear of breaking people's privacy or confidentiality. I mean, I'm always the person that tries to put myself in the other person's shoes. And I also would not want someone writing about things that are very private in my life. I wouldn't want anyone else writing about that. But it's hard. And then it leads to the silencing and the self-censoring. And I'm still trying to figure out how to break out of that because I feel like it is really important. The stories that I'm writing about, the stories that I'm sharing, And that it's not just this egotistical artistic practice, but there's greater meaning to it. I mean, I think that's why a lot of us read or consume films or things like that in the first place, is that we want to know that we're not alone, right? I remember one of the first, it was actually the first time I saw a Korean American writer. It was Isho Lee Park the temperature of this water. And I carried that book around with me for at least a year. I read it and reread it and reread it. And it was the first time I ever saw myself reflected on the page. And just the, the magnitude of that, the power of that. It's so amazing. And at the same time, it's so sad that so often our stories are not told.
0: Now, we'll hear a selection from Grace's live reading.
1: Before I learned to write my name, my mother dragged me to salons for perms. She had manicures done on my tiny nails and outfitted me in frilly dresses. You can never erase the first impression was my mother's mantra. According to my mother, it was my duty to look beautiful. We moved constantly and lived in areas where we were among the few Koreans. It didn't matter if we were broke, we had to ensure we always embodied elegance. Otherwise, Americans would take note and I would reflect poorly on Koreans all over the world. Whenever someone complimented my physique, my mother beamed as though she had won gold. She didn't seem impressed that I'd been awarded best English student as long as I maintained my reign as tallest girl at Korean church. I prayed to God every day you'd turn out tall and thin like your father, she smiled. My mother begged me to get plastic surgery to enlarge my eyes, wailed when I refused to follow up after being approached by a casting director for an Aveda ad, protested when I pulled out of a haute couture runway show I was scouted for, sobbed when I came home for Christmas with my lip pierced. She pled with me to please, please change my resistance toward beauty so that I could attract a good husband. The more beauty tips she offered, and the more she begged me to dress fashionably, the more I rebelled. While girls were memorizing makeup tips from 17, I preferred reading ethnographies or novels. My mother shrieked when I assembled care packages for homeless women with the makeup samples that she gave me. I washed my face with bar soap and my mother gasped at my savage behavior. My mother left voicemails telling me to wear a hat so my face wouldn't tan, to wear lipstick to class in case I encountered a single doctor. I regretted mentioning that my graduate program was housed in the same building as a medical school, and always smile in public. She wasn't just projecting on me either. My mother's commitment to beauty rivaled that of a beauty contestant. She meticulously cared for her skin, routinely applying creams, cucumber treatments, and facial massages. As a feminist and a Seven Sisters graduate, I was convinced that beauty products were surely invented to keep women down and broke. I didn't wanna waste my life cooking and cleaning for a man. I dreamt of becoming a veterinarian and saving lives or becoming a professor where I could spend endless hours reading and writing. After college, I decided to apply to teach English in Korea and learned that it was a common requirement to attach one's photo to a resume baffled i couldn't believe that this was legal my mother repeated you are always judged by your appearance it wasn't until adulthood that i began to understand my mother's obsession with beauty she began to share memories how she had witnessed north korean soldiers holding guns to her mother's head forcing her to cook her meager food supply for them while her family starved How, when the Korean War began when she was seven, she walked for days with her family from their home in North Korea to the South to escape the escalating violence with nothing but the clothes they wore. How she and her family slept on the floor of a church for months, not knowing when their next meal would be. Unable to ever return home again, my mother's family settled in South Korea. On the day my mother graduated from nursing school, she walked into a hospital to seek work Despite her limited wardrobe, she maximized her assets, carefully applying her makeup, selecting an outfit that accentuated her curvaceous figure, extraordinary amidst South Korea's waifish bodies. The doctor took one look at me and said, you're hired, she said. After hearing her story, I often thought of my mother's mantra. In South Korea's ultra-competitive Images Plus Society, Beauty was a physical marker of one's commitment to success. Beauty was a weapon that could be deployed to fight patriarchy, a source of power for getting ahead despite patriarchal consents that limited options for women. As the head nurse of an operating room in South Korea, my mother went from having nothing to living her best life. She commissioned custom design outfits for her curvy figure, ensuring she always looked impeccable. For my mother, beauty meant empowerment and independence. After immigrating to the U.S. and losing her career in independence, beauty was the one thing that my mother could maintain. No matter how hard things became, she got out of bed every morning and performed her beauty regimen with precision. Growing up, everything I associated with beauty had negative connotations, vanity, sexism, superficiality, Beauty meant surrendering to patriarchal standards, I thought. While experiencing severe depression after returning from working on a peacekeeping mission, I heard my mother's voice in my head, cheerleading with the battle cry favored by Korean mothers, FIGHTING! I dragged myself out of bed, carefully applied lip gloss, put on a cute outfit, and suddenly gained enough energy to leave my apartment. I thought of my mother and finally understood how her obsession with beauty kept her alive through dark days. Beauty wasn't just a performance for the benefit of the outside world. On a recent trip home, I caught my septuagenarian mother sitting at the dining table with downturned lips, staring into her handheld mirror. How does your mother look? She asked. Beautiful, I said, and watched her face light up. Thank
0: you. Sound Pages is a Jackstraw production produced by Levi Fuller and Daniel Gunther at Jackstraw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part through the Jackstraw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Ko, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keen. The Jackstraw Writers' Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jackstraw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.